Welcome to Inside Economics. I'm Mark Sandy, the Chief Economist of Moody's Analytics, and I'm joined by two of my colleagues, Chris, Chris Dorides. Hey, Chris. Hey, Mark. How are no you Marissa doing? today. Uh, and she, uh, what's she up to? Ah, uh, she's taking some well-deserved time off, I think. So. Ah, okay. Good for her. Uh, we'll miss her on Jobs Friday. Uh, big data. She. Sh- I don't know that you should be taking a day off on Jobs Friday. That doesn't feel like the right thing to do. Uh, she gave me her forecast before she left, just to uh-huh. show how dedicated she is. And uh, uh-huh. she did take the upside to her credit, but not not far enough, apparently. So. Oh, yeah, that was a big number, which we'll come back uh, to. And we've got yeah. Dante, Dante D'Antonio. Hey, Dante. Hi, Mark. How you doing? Good. You must have been surprised by the number. It took me a few minutes to uh, to gather my thoughts, Sam, before I started <laughs> writing about it. <laughs> well, good. Well, uh we are going to talk about the jobs number for the month of uh, January. A lot of labor market data came out this week. Uh, give us a good sense of what's going on with the economy. The Fed met uh, this week. Uh, I think we should uh, talk a bit about that. And uh, I, I also uh, published a, uh, our uh, election model results for 2024 with uh, two of our other colleagues, Brendan Lacerda and Justin Begley. So maybe we can Talk about if you if you guys are curious. Did you guys look at the results of that election model? I saw right. the headline. Yeah, you saw the headline. Take a quick look. Yep. Yeah. Okay. We can talk about that. and the winner is. We'll talk about that. Uh, anything else we should be talking about the on this podcast? Do you think I, that's a lot? But uh, just just asking. I'm sure something will come up. Okay. <laughs> Sounds good. All right. Okay. Well, well, let's talk about the jobs numbers. Uh, Dante, you want to give us a, a sense of the numbers? Yeah, sure. So uh, headline job growth came in just over 350,000 in January, which was uh, just about double uh, consensus expectations on our own forecast. So certainly a you know upside surprise in a, in a big way. Uh, big revisions, at least to December, not so much to November, but upward revisions the last two months totaled uh, just over 125,000. Uh, so on a three-month average basis, you know, last month when we got the report, job growth was averaging 165K. And now after revisions on the, the January number, the three-month average is 289. So quite a big shift uh, in terms of what job growth looked like over the last three months. Um much broader uh, job growth across industries. So we had been talking uh, towards the end of last year about sort of the narrowing of job growth into, you know, mostly healthcare and the public sector and leisure and hospitality uh, that seemed to widen back out a bit in January. Uh, Almost every major industry added to payrolls except for mining. Um, Even manufacturing got uh, a bit of a boost, a bigger gain than we've seen sort of outside of the the strike effect uh, for, for about a year or so. Uh, biggest gains were still in, in healthcare, not surprising, uh, but we also got a big gain in professional business services, which was a bit of a turnaround uh, after a you know sort of a sluggish stretch of job growth in the second half of, of last year. Uh, retail trade put up a pretty strong number for the second month in a row, although you know, there's always some, I think, skepticism around seasonal adjustment, particularly around the holidays in, in retail trade. So I'm not sure how much to, to read into that in terms of an actual turnaround. Um, yeah, but on the industry side of things, things look pretty good. On the household survey side, there wasn't a whole lot of news. Uh, you know, the updated population controls that they put into place every year in January didn't have a huge effect. Uh, the unemployment rate held steady at three seven. Labor force participation held steady. Uh, so there really just wasn't a whole lot to to write home about on the household survey. Most of the attention, I think, will be on 
uh, the payroll survey side of things with wage growth probably being close to the top of that list. Uh, wage growth over the month was up 0.6%. It's the biggest monthly gain since early in 2022. Year-over-year um, year growth is back up to 4.5% now by that measure uh, after it had gotten as low as about 4% a few months ago. So sort of moving in the wrong direction there from the, the Fed's perspective, I would assume. Although we can certainly talk about other measures of wage growth, which you know are probably not quite so volatile and, and not telling quite the same story. Uh, the one thing that I think maybe caught me off guard more than anything was average weekly hours was down uh, yeah. by two tenths to 34.1. That's you know, if you rule out the sort of initial pandemic impact, that's the lowest uh, level of average weekly hours since mid 2010, sort of in the throes of the Great Recession. Uh, again, it's it's one month, so I don't know how much to read into that, but it certainly was a, a big surprise on the downside, especially given the you know sort of ongoing strength and job growth that we're seeing. Yeah, a lot of cross currents uh, in this report. Of course, this is for the month of January, and uh, that make that. I think that's difficult for the Bureau of Labor Statistics keeper of the data to get right because seasonally fewer people are working. They try to seasonally adjust the data to make it uh, uh, agnostic to the seasonal patterns in, in the labor market. But doing that is not easy, particularly post-pandemic because the pandemic scrambled all the numbers and, and really made it difficult to tease out the seasonal patterns in the data. So, it, you know, there's big positives, big negatives. You add it all up. A lot of, lot of noise, but what what's the bottom line? I mean, how's the economy doing? Do you think uh, based on the num based based on all you all your gut instincts and you know do you throw everything into the pot? You stir it around. You've looked at these data many times. So what is it? What, how do you read the read these numbers? Yeah, I mean, the economy is still obviously doing well. I don't think this changes my expectation of what happens in the labor market in, in 2024. You know, I still think on net job growth is will be slower in 2024 than it was in 2023. And I don't think you know one strong reading here in January changes that expectation for me. Okay, so the economy is fine, doing well. Yeah, okay, now I, every month I, I ask you, I think almost every month, you know, what is the un, so-called what I call the underlying rate of job growth. So abstracting from the vagaries of the data, these seasonal adjustment issues. Uh, and I guess weather was might've also played a role in January. I don't know. We had a few big storms. I'm not sure. Maybe that affected the hours worked number. Um, the, you know, that I think that might've played a bit of a role, but uh, you know, abstracting from the vagaries of the data, what do you think underlying monthly job growth is right now? I still think it's in the 175 to 200 range, you know, so closer to where the average was in December than where it is now. Right. Okay. And that you, that feels like it's consistent with underlying labor force growth. You know, probably, I'm mixing and matching employment series here now, but feel, yeah, feel like this, unemployment is it was 3.7, 3.7% and rock solid, right? I mean, it hasn't budged all that much in i think two years right it's been pretty amazingly low and stable yeah that's right okay all right there was also bench so-called benchmark revisions you want to describe that just a little bit there it, it turned out it didn't really change the picture very much but i think it's important just to call that out too because again adding to the 
to the storyline that there's a lot a lot of statistical things going on in this report that you know make it a little bit more difficult to interpret sure so once a year the the bureau of labor statistics benchmarks the uh, employment data uh, that happens with the release of january data in the beginning of february every year uh, and that's essentially a process of uh, setting the level of employment to match what we get from the the QCW program, the quarterly census of employment and wages, which is a you know almost full universe, a, a full census count of employment. So what happens is that you know you have to look backwards pretty far. So the level for March of 2023 was benchmarked to that QCW level, right? So the level of employment that had been previously reported by the payroll survey is adjusted to match uh, that new March employment level, everything forward of that. So from April, 2023 through December, that data is then re-estimated off of that new level. So when you're talking about the revision that happened in December, it's the result of not only the sort of normal reasons for revisions where you get additional sample data coming in over the next two months, but it's also uh, you're sort of confounded by the, the benchmark change as well, where we're sort of estimating job changes off of a different level of, of employment than we had before. Um, you know, to your point, it didn't have a huge impact uh, this year as a small downward revision sort of by historical standards. I think it shaved something like you know twenty thousand jobs a month off of the average twenty twenty three gain. So you know, in terms of, I think what we're thinking about and what's important moving forward, I'm not sure that it really impacts the story much at all. But certainly does you know convolute some of those changes and revisions that we're talking about. Okay, all right, Chris, what do you think? Uh, anything is any gaps in um, Dante's assessment here? Um, anything you'd call out that he didn't uh, call out or? Uh, no, not, not really. I think he uh, he covered the some of the cross currents as we mentioned that you know, payrolls are strong, but the uh, work hours are are lower. So uh, the average well, there's an index of um, of uh, hours that actually total hours that actually fell right aggregate hours. Sorry. Um, so you know they hire more people, but they work less. That we have some conflicting signals there. Uh, I think the um, average hour earnings certainly is getting a lot of attention in the markets, but again, to Dante's point, I don't know how much to, to read into that for one month, but certainly something on the Fed's mind uh, that uh, we need to follow closely here. Again, I don't know that it at this point, I don't think the report changes Fed policy on what they plan to do. There's another report before they meet again in March, so... Yeah, well, okay, I'm sitting here eating my uh, cereal. Uh, I have my blueberries. I have my raspberries before 8.30. I wait till 8.30 to pour my cereal so I can, you know, look at the report while I'm, you know, eating my cereal before I tweet out something. And uh, I see 300, is it 355,000? Was that the number? 353, yeah. Three, 353, and I, and I go, ooh, whoa. <laughs> I go, uh, the immediate thought in my mind was, well, everyone's now going to think the economy's going to overheat. Yeah, so there's, you know, everyone had been saying the economy's going to go into recession. That obviously is not true. But what could happen is the economy could rev back up, and inflationary pressures uh, revive, and the Fed not only doesn't ha- cut interest rates like everyone's widely expecting, it has to start raising rates right again. Yeah. You know, kind of the, and I think that's not a, you can't rule that scenario out. That's a scenario. Yeah. 
Uh, so I'm looking at that. And then I see the average hourly earnings and I go, oh, my goodness, that, you know, just adds to that concern, right? That, okay, average hour at, you know, four and a half percent year over year, that's kind of on the high side of the comfort zone. I say it's, a, I say it's north of the comfort zone because you want uh, earnings growth to be consistent with productivity growth and the 2% inflation target. And if you do the arithmetic, that comes in south of four. It's not north of four. Certainly not four and a half percent, that kind of thing. But then Unless I the go, productivity we saw this week sticks, right? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. That could be the case. Well, I'm just, I'll come back. I'm telling you that my uh, thought process, it's taking me a long time to describe what was happening in my mind in nanoseconds. But, you know, this is kind of, kind of my thought process. Then I go, oh, uh, but look, hours worked fell and hours worked is pretty low in the grand historical scheme of things. I mean, I think, is it 34.1 hours? Yeah. That's the average weekly hours, 34. That, correct me if I'm wrong, Dante, but if you look in in history, at least certainly in the last decade or so, that's really low. I mean, you have to go back to the teeth of the pandemic shutdowns to find it as low as that. Am I right? Am I, I think, yeah, I mean, right? it basically only happens in recessions. You know, if you look back in in recent history, you only get hours worked that low during during a recession. Okay, and then I look at the household survey. Could, okay, so, you know, the payroll survey is a survey of businesses, and we all look at that first. That's the three hundred fifty three thousand. Then we go, okay, let's look at the household survey. That's a survey of I think it's sixty thousand or so. I think it's maybe more than that. Maybe it's eighty thousand households. I can't remember. Uh, and uh, you know, we get a of uh, that's where the unemployment rate comes from, but we also get an estimate of employed and employment and labor force. And if you put that declined, household employment actually declined, I believe. And if you correct me if I'm wrong, Dante, and it, am I wrong? It, so it did as reported, but it, you know, they they changed the population controls in January, and they don't actually revise the historical data. So they do publish a. Oh an estimated change if you sort of remove the effect of yeah. the changing population control. So if you do that, the employed series was actually up in the household series. Oh, uh, household uh, to, survey. but, but, but if you put it on a, a payroll survey basis, that I actually did not look at. So, it Oh yeah. You go take a look at it. It's a big decline. Okay. So maybe we even, I'm pretty sure even with the population controls, I mean, I'm not, I'm not sure they published that data, but I'm, I'm guessing because the decline in the household survey based on the same uh, kind of measurement as the payroll survey, I'm speaking from memory, but I think it was down 250,000 jobs, something like that. Uh, and, you know, even with the, with the population controls, I bet you it's still down. So I guess my point is, you know, I immediately go in one direction, then I go in the other direction. And then the bottom line of all this zigging and zagging is, ah, Nothing's changed. <laughs> the economy's fine. The economy's fine, and uh, prospects are good. Okay, I mean, anyone disagree with that assessment? Bottom line assessment? No, no. Yeah. Did no, you revise up your uh, December giddiness? Or did I revise up my December? Oh, because the there were upward revisions for the December number. Although some of that's convoluted by the benchmark. Revisions, yeah, but... <laughs> no, no, because we, I, I don't want, I want just right. I mean, the okay. December number <laughs> previously was just right. Now it's not quite just right. So it actually diminishes my giddiness a little bit. Okay, yeah. fair enough. Although having said that, I, I think we might need to start revising or thinking about what is the 
sustainable level of employment growth, at least for the you know near term, you know, not forever, but you know, next year or so. Going back to the fact that we're getting so many immigrants into the country, and that looks like it's really juicing up labor force and allowing the economy to create a lot more jobs than otherwise would be the case without generating inflationary pressures. Um, oh, and the, the other thing I just wanted to point out, going back to wages, we got the employment cost index this week, didn't we? The ECI? We did. Yep. Yeah, it's all a blur. So what did that say? And, and wouldn't you put much more weight on the employment cost index than the average hourly earnings number? I would, yeah. And it actually came in slightly below expectations for the fourth quarter. Year-over-year growth at the end of 2023 in the ECI is uh, 4.3% for private industry workers. Um, and that's, you know, so that's obviously not that far off from the 4.5% here, but the sort of pattern, I think, makes a lot more sense in the ECI. You know, it peaked at 5.7% back in mid-2022 and has been on a pretty stable downward trend to 4.3%, right? It looks like it's still moving lower, Whereas in average hourly earnings, you got there's a lot more noise month to month, and you know it sort of bottomed out around four, and now looks like it's coming back up again. So it just I think it's a little bit more confusing to try to figure out what's going on. Yeah. So the ECI felt, you know, I, I definitely is, and as you, I think you said it, it's, it was four percent on the nose, wasn't it? ECI is four point three percent year over year. Uh, and okay, and then qu- a quarter over quarter annualized, I think it was, I think it was four percent. It's probably around four percent. Yeah. Yeah, and and that I'd say is very consistent with kind of the Fed's inflation target given underlying uh, or given where productivity growth is at certainly at the moment. Okay. Okay. So um, yeah, you know, bottom line, a lot of noise. Uh, the signal though is the same. Uh, the economy is fine and all the, uh, all, uh, all the trend lines, at least in the near term, look, look pretty good. And anyone disagree with that? No. no. Okay. No. Chris, I don't. Have you been following? Mar- I have not been. Have you been following markets this morning? How are they taking this? What are the? Is their interpretation similar to our interpretation? What's the stock market doing? What's the bond market doing? Do you know? Uh, the, the initial re- I haven't checked recently, but the initial reaction was, um, you know, uh, some readjustment of the uh, the uh, the Fed's uh, reaction here. That March is clearly off the table in terms of a rate cut, and increasingly. You know, pushing it out to May, even June, right? So, um, bond yields uh, rose, equity market fell. I don't know. Again, might be, might have. Yeah, I'm looking right now. <laughs> adjusted I'm right but... now. The stock market is basically flat. The S and P Dow's down, Nasdaq's up because we got great earnings from Amazon and uh, Meta. Meta, yeah. And this S and P uh, is up a little bit, a little bit of green. But the big change is in the ten-year Treasury yield, although. Exactly. That was weird. That's weird too, because it has been falling pretty sharply in the last couple of days, which I yeah. couldn't quite get. I didn't understand. And now with this surge today with the employment report, I think the 10 year treasury yield, I'm looking right now, it is just over 4%. Yeah, 4.04%, which is exactly where you, you know, I'd expect it to be, right? So, yeah, not sure, right. not sure what, what to read into that. Yeah. There's some noise this week, but uh... right, right. Um, okay, well, you brought up the Fed, uh, the Federal Reserve Board, and they had their meeting this week. The FOMC, the Federal Open Market Committee, had its meeting this week to set monetary policy, and uh, no, no surprise they didn't change policy. Uh, I guess the big surprise, if there was one, at least to some some market participants, was that uh, the Fed, at least uh, Chair Powell, Jay Powell, uh, indicated that March 
a March rate cut was unlikely to happen. Um, any takeaways, for, uh, Chris, from the, uh, the Fed meeting that you'd want to point out? Anything that was that a surprise to you? No, I didn't. I didn't think uh, March was going to happen uh, for a while now. now obviously, there's still uh, some room here to make some uh, some adjustments, but um, yeah, I, I don't think the the, the Fed's uh, statement was was all that surprising. Or I think Powell was uh, as expected a little bit uh, cautious in terms of. Uh, monetary policy going forward really need to see inflation coming down solidly towards the 2% target for a sustained period of time before they rush in to to cut. Dante, anything on the... It it didn't seem surprising. I mean, it seems like the sort of natural progression of them shifting language in favor of, you know, cutting at some point soon. You know, a couple months ago, there was still rate hikes on the table and then they've sort of gradually taken that off the table and you know but still making clear that they're not immediately going to cut so i would i would assume in march you're know, barring some major change in data coming in that they're going to sort of increasingly push that language in favor of rate cuts starting you know in may or june so right and i think in our you know we, we have in our forecast and have had in our forecast a the first rate cut being may thinking that yeah they they'd probably be cautious cutting rates, at least initially, until they're absolutely sure that inflation is uh, back to target. But the the inflation statistics all feel like they're moving in the right direction here, right? I mean, the core consumer expenditure deflator, a measure of inflation, which is the measure the Fed uses uh, for gauging its 2% inflation target, that was a little south of 2%, I think, annualized over the last six months of last year. So I, I, I'm sure that overstates the case. I don't think we're there yet. I don't think we're at the two percent target, but we're we're close close and closing in on that target. I think yeah, you know, relatively quickly. Um, here's the thing, though, that I uh, I'm in a little bit of difficulty with. Okay, you're the Federal Reserve. Uh, you have two objectives by by law. Uh, you, your mandate is one. Full employment. You gotta. You want to keep the economy at full employment. I'd say, correct me if I'm wrong. Mission accomplished. You know, three point seven percent unemployment. We've been there. Sub four percent. We've been between three and a half and four percent for two years. Two years. Two years. Unemployment is low across every demographic. I was just looking at some of the unemployment rate for different uh, 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 ethnic groups, and they're very low. Uh, so I think we can all conclude full employment. Uh, the second mandate is in getting inflation back to target. They've set the, t- the target at 2%. And as we just discussed, we're not quite there, there there yet, but we're pretty darn close. And it feels like we're going to get there certainly by the end of the year, probably uh, you know, s- maybe be earlier than that you know, set sometime in the second half of this year. So if that's the case... Uh, you're now at the F, uh, on the FMC at the Fed, and you're you know S- September, October, November, December. You've achieved your mandate. You've achieved both objectives: full employment, inflation at target. Wouldn't that argue that in the that the federal funds rate, the the interest rate the Fed controls, should be at its long run equilibrium rate, meaning R, the so called R star, that rate that's consistent with monetary policy, neither restraining or uh, supporting growth and doesn't I, I mean all the estimates out the fed's estimate of what our star is is 2.5 percent that's at least 
implied in their forecasts that we see every quarter from the summary of uh, economic projections. That's where they put the funds rate at in the long run, two and a half percent. I suspect it, it's higher than that in our forecast. In our forecast, we have it at three. But okay, uh, three. Let's say say three percent. Funds rates currently five and a half. That's a pretty big gap between five and a half and three. What does that mean, uh, Chris? Any views on that? I mean, I've got a view what it means, but what does it mean? I think you're. If that really was, if things stuck at that uh, at that level, we are at equilibrium. Then yes, it it would by definition it would suggest it has to be higher. RSR has to be higher. Higher than three? Yeah. If indeed we're we're cruising along and everything is just uh you know, inflation is Oh, that's uh, your view. Your view then is that the that the funds rate is gonna settle in at a much higher level than the Fed's two and a half percent and our three percent. Well, I'm not convinced that that's equilibrium, right? That, yeah. I think there might be more weakness ahead, right? Okay. So I think well, that okay. Okay, that's. I don't think we stick at four or four and a half. I think we right. That's interesting. Okay, that's not my takeaway from all this. Your your takeaway is maybe the equilibrium rate's a lot higher than we think it is. It's not two and a half. It's not three. Maybe it's four. Maybe it's four and a half. Well, no, I don't. Well, you what you described was a world where we are at equilibrium, right? Unemployment is uh, fixed. Inflation is not is is um, is solid. Right. Well, that's the world. We're, that's the world that our forecast says we're headed to, and that's that's the world that it looks like that's coming. Right. That that feels like the world that's dead ahead. No. Yeah. Well, but our forecast suggests that the Fed does have to cut in order to hit that uh, objective. That we do get back to three percent. Right. Well, uh, I get. I, well, no. This is okay. Dante, what's your perspective <laughs> on this? Yeah, I mean, I, I think I see what Chris is getting at. Right. I mean. Is there is the expectation that in, uh, inflation stays on this glide path and just stops at two percent if the Fed doesn't do anything? I think that's what you're suggesting. Is that a, could that be possible that we're just in equilibrium now? Inflation gets to two percent and stays there even if the Fed does nothing. I don't you know. I don't think that's true. So our right, star is not five and a half percent. No, to Chris's no. point, like our forecast has inflation getting back to target and staying there, but that's under the assumption that the Fed obviously starts cutting rates and, and goes down to 3% over time. That's what's necessary to sort of keep inflation around 2% instead of it falling much below that. Uh, you know, is it 3%? Is it 3.5%? I mean, I think that is probably a, a fair debate, but given how much room there is to cut to get to 3% at this point and you know, it doesn't feel like the inflation dynamics are such that it's going to go to zero all of a sudden if the Fed doesn't do anything. You know, it feels like inflation will still stick, you know, somewhere in the positive range, even if they stayed at five and a half percent. So, yeah, I think there's, like you said, it's a it's a big gap that you're talking about closing, and what impact does that have on inflation over time if you do that? Okay, well, my sense of what this means is the Fed is going to have to be cutting rates very aggressively in in a, in a in a short period of time and the longer they wait the more likely they're going to have to be cutting you know they, they run the risk of causing the economy the banking system the financial system the economy to start to really weaken and seize up and they they're going to be under 
pressure to move very rapidly when they start to move. So it may not, like in our forecast, we've got the Fed beginning to lower rates in May. They lower rates four times this year, a quarter point each time, four more times in 2025, a quarter point each time. And then I think a couple times, uh, you have to do the arithmetic, a couple times in 2026 and you get back to three and a half percent, or excuse me, get back to 3%. That's the equilibrium rate in our uh, forecast here in, in the immediate future. I, I guess what I'm asking or arguing or just wondering about is maybe they have to go a lot faster than that, you know? I mean, because I've, I've, you've hit your mandate, right? And if you in, if, the, if the R star actually is 3%, then you're playing with fire, you know, uh, with keeping rates elevated for an extended period. You're going to have to cut rates a lot more quickly than than our forecast would suggest, which is very consistent with, I think, most forecasts of the funds rate going forward. But so does that... Go ahead, Chris, go, ahead, go ahead. Go ahead, Dante. Uh, but does that, you know, this idea that cutting rates much faster, does that fit with uh, a labor market that's adding 200, 250,000 jobs a month and wage growth is on the upper end of 4%? You know, isn't there some concern that if they start cutting rates more quickly than we expect, that that has some sort of positive impact on a labor market that already feels like it's running, you know, on the verge of hot, right? Well, then what you're arguing is that our star is a lot higher. You're, you're arguing that the economy is going to be much more resistant to the to the interest rate, to the high interest rates, and that our star is not two and a half, it's not three. It's something a lot higher than that. It's four, it's four and a half. That's what you're arguing in that scenario. Yeah, Overall, I guess, aren't you? Time. I mean, right? Well, right. If the labor market can stay strong yeah, exactly. with rates at five and a half, then sure, yes. I guess that's an argument. Uh, yeah. That's yeah. Right. So I, that could very well be the case, by the way. I mean, the economy does feel like it's rate insensitive for lots of different reasons, which we've talked about, like households and businesses have done a very, and I'm speaking aggregate in aggregate with a broad brush, not everybody, but households and businesses We've done a very good job locking in, did a very good job locking in the previously low record interest rates. And so even with the higher rates that the Fed has engineered here over the last couple of years, you haven't really seen debt service, you know, the uh, cash flow of businesses or the income of households going to servicing debt rise because that they've locked in. So it makes them yeah. less. There's other ways that higher interest rates affect the economy, no doubt about it, but that's, that's a, a way an example of why the federal funds rate, the equilibrium rate actually might be a lot higher. So, you know, I guess what I'm saying is either the equilibrium rate is a lot higher or they're going to be cutting rates a lot faster than anyone thinks they're going to be cutting, you know, once they start cutting. And the longer they wait to cut, the faster they're going to have to cut, you know, to get to make sure that they don't wreck the economy, to push the economy. Again, if our star is higher. Now, is that am I am I missing something, Chris? No, I I guess I'm I'm thinking of what is the long run, right? <laughs> what period? So it it could very well be that our star is three percent, but to your point, it just will take this cycle. It's going to take a lot longer uh, to get there, right? So our star over the next couple of years may in fact be closer to four, right? But then uh, I assume that. These locking effects in terms of the interest rates on on housing, the all the cash that households and and corporations have that might be buffering some of that transmission mechanism of interest rates that that will eventually wear off or that will 
adjust. But to your point, I think it it may take a a while to get there. Yeah, and I think in uh, this is a, a statement that really meant to be a question. Uh-huh. Uh huh. Or maybe it's a question that is meant to be a statement. I'm not sure. But <laughs> <laughs> Uh, either way, uh, I'm going to say it and I just get your reaction. I, I don't think we should think of our star as this kind of in a long run context. I mean, it, it, in terms of hmm. its usefulness for the conduct of monetary policy, who cares about the long run? I don't care about the law. I don't care about, you know, on average over the next 10 years. What I care about is what's our star like over the next year or two? You know, that's what I care okay. about. All right. Yeah. So more of a dynamic R star. Yeah. Yeah. <clears throat> and that's how I think that's what I, how I would think about R star. It's not this immutable thing etched in concrete, you know, and changes very slowly over time. It, it evolves, you know, uh, it, over periods of time. And so it could very well be the case that, you know, in 2024, 2025, R star is not, I don't think it's two and a half under any circumstances. Right. And it may not be three, which is our forecast. It it actually may be four or four and a half percent, you know, something like that. So anyway, um uh that wasn't that was a good thing to be a reasonable conundrum to conundrum over, you know, don't you think? Yeah. I no? think so. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. okay. Absolutely. <laughs> okay. Uh okay. Anything else on the Fed? No? Okay. Um let's uh Let's play the statistics game. Uh, and the game is we each put forward a statistic. The rest of the group tries to figure that out with questions, deductive reasoning, and clues. And the best stat is one that's not so easy, we get it immediately. And one that's not so hard, we never get it. And if it's apropos to the topic at hand, uh, all the better. Uh, Dante, what's your stat? So I'm going to I'm going to preface this by saying this is a little unorthodox but I'm going to use it anyway. Uh okay. 517,000. Employment related? It is employment related but not from today's report. It's uh it's backward looking a little bit. Uh is it a measure of jobs? It is a measure of jobs, yeah. Some revisions? Of- it's not revisions, it's a Change it's a it. number that was published at some point in the in the past. Oh, it, it has nothing to do with the revi- with revisions. No. And is it a change in employment or is it a, a level? It's a change in employment, yeah. Job growth. Is it a, a annualized change? A period uh, over a year? No, it's a. It was a monthly gain. At some point oh, in the past. oh, was it like one January back January of 2021? One, just not that far back. Oh, really? Did we get a 2022? January 2022? Even or, closer. January 2023? Yeah, January 2023, oh, we added 517,000 really? jobs, which was at the time a huge upside surprise it's oh, yeah. eerily similar to today uh so at that time job growth was stronger you know underlying job growth the three-month average coming into that was about 300k and we got 517 in the initial report you know today coming in job growth was averaging 165 and we got 353 right so you got about 200,000 above trend in both cases 
Uh, I went back and looked the title of the podcast from a year ago when we talked about um, January, uh-huh. jaw dropping January jobs. Uh, you know, so I feel like we could have, we should use that again. I could have copy and pasted. <laughs> I think my conversation about the release, it just feels very much the same conversation that we got this big number in January. And then obviously it didn't ultimately matter that much for the rest of the year, right? Job growth average, 250 K in 2023. So the 517 didn't ultimately matter all that much. So all that is just to come back to, I don't think this number today should fundamentally change the the picture about what we expect to happen in 2024. Um, because we've seen the story before. Now that is so interesting. And it is a 517,000 job gain held up with these revisions. It's now at 482. So, I mean, it's still very oh, 482. strong. It'll, it'll still strong. Come down a little bit, but it's still very strong. Yeah. Oh, and so it just feels like this is a seasonal adjustment issue. Is is that? Yeah, I mean, to your point, January is always tough. I mean, there yeah. I did look at the seasonals. There doesn't appear to be any big red flag, but you know, January yeah. is the the month where there's the biggest change in employment on right. a not adjusted basis, and so right. you know, the seasonal adjustment factor matters a whole lot in January, and I think you can get sort of these odd numbers cropping up, you know, because you have such a big change in employment happening. Okay, this may be a little unfair, but can you explain uh, to us how the pandemic it could mess with the seasonal factors? Uh, you know, what's the mechanism through which? And I'm assuming that January is always difficult, but the pandemic probably has scrambled things to even a greater degree. Do you do you agree with that? And if you agree with that, can you can you explain it? Yeah, I mean, I would generally agree. I mean, in sort of simple terms, right? Seasonal adjustment looks at what usually happens in this month of the year, right? So in January, we usually see job growth or you know jobs fall by about two and a half to three million, right, on an unadjusted basis. And so seasonal adjustments looking at that sort of average change and it's applying an adjustment to try to sort of get rid of the seasonal component of that, right? So that big part of that drop is just what happens every January and trying to leave you with the the trend piece, right? What's sort of new this year relative to those prior years. Uh, so because it's based on this idea of comparing a change now to a change in recent history, obviously the pandemic had an effect on those normal seasonal patterns. And so you know, the BLS has had to work hard at trying to figure out, you know, do we exclude some of those years? Do we include them? You know, are those, you know, are the 2020, 2021, 2022 period, you know, are those representative of the seasonal patterns that we expect to see moving forward, or are they sort of fundamentally different? So it, it just leaves a lot of room for, you know, sort of adjustment assumptions around which seasonal pattern is right. You know, do we expect the seasonal patterns to, you know, sort of flip back and look like they did in 2018 and 2019? Or do we think things have shifted since then? And should they really look like, you know, they did in 2022 and 2023? So to your point, I think it just leaves more room for interpretation, more room for this possibility that you get these sort of odd numbers that might not be really uh, you know, representative of underlying job growth. Yeah. Okay. That I mean, that's that is that is so interesting. And what's really interesting is I have no recollection of that whatsoever. Do you, Chris? I, I, I didn't either. I just happened to see, you know, they published the January 2023 number with the January 20, and I saw it was big, and I'm like, huh, I don't remember that. And I went back and I looked at what I wrote last year, and I was like, huh, yeah, this was that was a big. It was basically the same story. So, yeah, there's only there's only uh, kind of a similar kind of story coming out of the financial crisis. Yeah, I think it was. Um, I can't I can't remember what year it was. Uh, 
it might have been 2011. Uh, so that was, you know, in the wake of the financial crisis, and we weren't quite sure whether the economy was kicking into gear or not. And we had been getting a few months of positive job growth, you know, meaningful job growth. And then August of 2011, it, it was like zero jobs, no jobs created. And everyone kind of went into a tizzy, you know, oh my gosh, you know, the world's, you know, not what we thought it was. Uh, and uh, of course, that was a head fake, just like the Presumably, this was a kind of a head, sort of a head fake, uh, and it, you know the it, go, it goes back to measurement. August is also a very difficult month to measure for the BLS because businesses are on vac- people are on vacation, and you know they get low response rates. Which, by the way, I don't know. Did you look at the response rates to this survey by any chance? Maybe you can take a quick look. I'm really sh- curious if the what the response rates were uh, to the survey because that also plays a role. Okay, that was a really good one. A really, really good one. Um, uh, Chris, what's your stat? 3.2%. 3.2% in the employment numbers? No. Nope. Is it jobs re- employment related? Are you, I know. Is it a I number know. to rub something in my face? Uh, could it be productivity? Is it Indeed a- it is. Figured. <laughs> 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 Nicely done. Nicely done. <laughs> uh, explain. That is uh, Q4 uh, output per hour uh, productivity growth uh, annualized. Uh, 3.2% is a still a very strong number. Um, you know, and this I, I chose this because it's really the key uh, to the outlook, right? If productivity growth can remain strong above 2%, certainly that uh, that makes life easier for the Fed, makes life easier for consumers. We can sustain higher wage growth. So this is an important number of watch here. Uh, in, well, you got to explain Dante's comment about rubbing his nose. Oh, oh, well, we have a, we have a the uh, eye, whatever you, the description. Uh, we have a long running debate. Slap in him in the face, you know. <laughs> <laughs> uh, long running debate on uh, future productivity growth, right? We had historically prior to the uh, Great Recession, you know, sizable productivity growth, closer to 2%. In the decade since the Great Recession, uh, say Great Recession until the pandemic, we had very anemic uh, productivity growth. And uh, so that uh, certainly is a concern. But since the pandemic, we've seen some uh, revival, right? Actually, a little bit of uh, fits and starts, if you will, right? So we initially had a a big surge in uh, productivity during the shutdowns, right, we cut out a lot of uh, labor, but continue to uh, produce uh, at, at a high level. Uh, and now, uh, so we said a little bit of a pullback, and now we've seen somewhat of a, a resurgence here. And there's a lot of debate whether this is uh, going to be sustained productivity growth. Right? Is this just, again, due to some temporary uh, adjustments or is the uh, shift to remote work or the uh, adoption of AI going to kind of uh, usher in a, a renaissance of, uh, of stronger productivity growth? I'm on the, the pro <laughs> uh, technological change camp here that I think we will get some boost. And uh, Dante is a little bit more dour in terms of the, uh, the outlook here. Dante's always dour. Have you noticed that? I don't. I don't think that's oh. fair. Is it? Am I, oh, wow. am I that negative that's, all the time? I don't that's, know. That's, don't that's know. a little harsh. A little harsh. Maybe I, he's just a little. He's cautious. Let's let's put it that way. He's maybe not dour. Maybe he's that's cautious. fair. Yeah, cautious. So so I, you want to 
what do you say, Dante? I mean, yeah, I mean, I, I, I'm not ready to change my, my outlook just yet, but I mean, harder to to stick by it here quarter by quarter i mean we keep getting strong output growth and you know hours are basically flat to slightly down and so that you know leads us to the assumption that productivity is much stronger i think my question still is is it sustain i don't think obviously i think chris would agree on no. 3.2 percent is sustainable but so quite what is sustainable over a year two years three years you know is it is it two percent is it above two percent is it below two percent so i'm yeah it's the data is volatile. I think it's hard to get a read even over four quarters sometimes about what's really going on. So yeah, I'm, I'm getting closer to maybe edging off my uh, pessimism about productivity, but I'm not quite there yet. Although I, I'll, I'll just point out, I did a little back of the envelope. What do you think average annual productivity growth has been over the past four years? So uh, before the pandemic, go back to 2019 Q4, compare it to productivity in... Uh, 2023 Q4, so that four-year period in the post-pandemic, what do you think average annual growth in non-farm business productivity uh, was during that period? And don't Google it. Don't since 2020. Since Q4 2019, I picked Q4 2019 because it got it got hit in Q1 with the pandemic. One seven, one eight. Yeah, I was going to say two. Yeah, one point six percent per annum. What was it in the four years? prior to the pandemic. So go back to the fourth quarter of 2015 compared to the fourth quarter of 2019. Calc probably one and a half. 1.7%. Yeah. So I mean I don't know. I, I I'm kind of my intuition and my my hope is in Chris's with consistent with Chris's wor- worldview here on productivity. I, I think he's right. But I don't know. It's I think it's way too premature at this point. I mean you know, yeah. very much. Uh, I mean, all. I mean, I, mean I, I had thought, you know, remote work would be productivity enhancing, but I mean, the evidence that we've gotten so far would is not supportive of that, right? If anything, it might be, at least, at least so far, uh, a bit of a constraint on productivity. Uh, and AI holds a lot of promise, but that, that it's just promise. I mean, at this point, I mean. Feels like more hype than anything, you know, up to this point in time. Um, I don't know, Chris. What do you think? So pessimistic. What's going on, Mark? I appreciate you making my point for me, though. Thank you, Mark. That's no, I'm just saying. I mean, it, and I, you know, I do think that all the quitting that went on that probably has helped out productivity to some. It has to have, right, to some degree. I mean, people got into jobs that they quit jobs that they didn't like. Uh, they wasn't suited to their skills and education talents and they moved in the last couple three years four years to jobs that are more suited so that after you get up a learning curve you would expect that to help productivity growth and maybe that's what we're observing but i don't know that's a one-time yeah it's one time deal then right it's a one-time deal yeah that's exactly right um anyway so i i I, my intuition is you on the side of chris but and also the, all the work that we, we've alluded to, we've mentioned this in the past, Dante and I did this work um, trying to understand the demographic effects on productivity and found that, you know, the aging population and aging workforce does is a constraint on productivity growth. And that, that should, that constraint should, it's still, a, it's, the aging is still weighing on productivity, but be, it, over time it's becoming less of a weight, right? Yeah. You know, here going forward. But, uh, uh, but I don't know. I don't think we've gotten there yet. Uh, anyway, 
Um, I okay. disagree with that uh, thesis, by the way. Which the oh the, the aging the, the thesis? as, as I celebrate as I celebrate some milestone birthdays here. Uh, oh, you know, I yeah, the, yeah. I rejected wholeheartedly. No, I, I don't think you were quite in the age bracket that we were focused yeah, on. Yeah, no, 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 unless you're, unless you're really fooling me, I don't know. I, you know. <laughs> I think I'm the guy who's in the age bracket who's the problem. And obviously, you're lifting us all up, Mark. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. So, you know, let's just be fair. Oh, There's oh, the optimism. Beautifully done. The there it is, right? Yeah, I appreciate that. Very yeah. kind. Okay. Uh, you ready for my stat? Yeah. 308. Sorry, what? 308. 308. No, no thousands, <laughs> no, no units. No. no, no units. 308. Exactly 308. Just a unitless figure. <laughs> I well, it, what do you mean it's unitless? It's, is it something? It's the number is three hundred and eight. Is it from <laughs> something that came out today? Uh, no, it didn't come out today. This week, it out, though, it came out this week. Okay. Yeah. Is it an index? No. Is it an electoral vote count? Yes, it is. <laughs> oh, there it is. Yeah, that's right. That <laughs> is excellent. Great job. Oh, wow. I I got, I, guys, uh, what made you think that? That was good. That was really good. I was thinking the next topic. Uh, the next topic, <laughs> the presidential election. Yeah. So 308 is the number of electoral votes we uh, are projecting President Biden will get in the 2024 election. That's based on our presidential election model, uh, which we, we've we been producing this model at the state electoral college level now. I think we've done five, six elections. We dusted it off. We updated it. We improved it. And with, uh, as I mentioned earlier, Brendan Lacerda, our colleague, and Justin Begley, uh, 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 came out with a report. We had a webinar, and it it's uh, 308 electoral votes. Just for context, you need uh, 270 electoral votes to become president of the United States. So that's a pretty, uh, you know, uh, he, he got th Biden got just for context. Biden got 306 electoral votes in the uh, 2020 election, uh, and uh, so 308 is uh, is pretty good. It's close. Uh, you know, it's a still a very close rate. Five states uh, are within one percentage point uh so uh, you know they they're just enough to swing most of them over to to biden but they are are very close and obviously there's a boatload of assumptions we're making here in forecasts uh, one of the key assumptions is around turnout uh, turnout really matters and we're assuming that uh that the uh, republican turnout uh, is consistent with uh, the turnout that occurred in 20 uh, 2020, and it was pretty high. There was a lot of, you know, Republican enthusiasm and Democratic turnout was very high as well, but we're assuming the same. And of course, if it's if it's even higher than that, that could swing the election. The other um, uh, assumption is around third party candidacies. Uh, you know, we're assuming that the number of votes that go to the third parties in the 2024 election is uh, similar to recent elections and that's been pretty low and that that could be a uh we could see something very different in this election there's a lot of potential third party candidates you got robert kennedy out there you've got cornell west no labels that's the uh the uh, kind of the 
of nonpartisan self self uh, self appointed nonpartisan uh, group that uh, may come forward with a candidate. And if that happens, typically that hurts the incumbent. So if we get a lot of third party uh, votes uh, this go around, that could be a problem for for Biden. Uh, but the reason why Biden wins um, uh, is the economy, uh, you know, in our forecast for where the economy is going to be as we approach Election Day. Uh, we expect the unemployment rate to remain low, real incomes after inflation income can, can, incomes to continue to improve. Uh, but here's the two variables that matter a lot, uh, which uh, I found a, a little surprising. One. Well, prices, gas prices matter a lot. And if right now the cost of a gallon of regular unleaded is three buck 15 cents, if it rises to closer to $4 a gallon uh, on a, in a consistent way, not just for a day or two or a week or two, but for you know a, a couple, three months, $4 or more, uh, the election will swing to Trump, all else being equal. So that gives you context there. And on the more, the other key variable is the mortgage rate. Uh, and you know, right, it had been at eight percent the thirty-year fix. Now it's down below seven. If it goes back to eight and a half percent, and stays there for again not for a week or two, but for a couple three months, uh, all else being equal, that'll swing the election as well. So the election, uh, we expect Biden to win, but uh, the uh, uh, the election is going to be very close and could turn on a a few things here if it goes in the opposite direction. Uh, uh, what do you think? I guess the question, is it just the level of gas prices or is it the trend? Right? They're coming in. I'd assume it's the that change the, in. It's actually the change in. Change in. It's the change okay. in. Yeah. And that's a great point. Most things, most economic factors, variables, it's not so much the level, although with the mortgage rate, it is the level. We tried to change too, but it's mm. the level. And that may go to affordability. Uh, you know, I, if you're eight percent plus, uh, first-time homebuyer is just un impossible with these with these high house prices to afford to buy single-family homes. So they're locked out. So it's, it may, that's maybe why the level matters more. But for most economic variables, it's the change in. Uh, we also have real household income in the in the model. And it's the change in real household income after inflation income uh, per household. Interesting. And what's yeah. the what's the window of time? You said three months prior to the election. That's really the the key. Yeah. Window. It's not that. Yeah. People are looking back over. Well, it's the kind of the change over, over the that year, landing in the kind of the okay. second second third quarter of the of the election year that matters. That matters. Okay. Now. Yeah. So my expectation is that turnout's going to be low this year. It's really? Not... Why? Why do you say so? Because it's a repeat, right? It's a, ah. I don't see a lot of enthusiasm. Yeah. Right? The, the quantities are, I expect that the ratings on any debate are actually going to be low because it, I don't see a new message from either candidate. I think everyone kind of knows what the message is. So that's my, my take is that it's going to be hard to generate enthusiasm. So what does that imply for, you talked about higher turnout. Lower turnout. What, yeah, how I would mean, that, uh... yeah, I think it. it, it I mean, if it, it, it's 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 kind of it's relative whether Republican or Democrat incumbent, uh, you know, uh, challenger. If if uh, if let's say by President Biden's turnout, Democrat turnout is lower than typical. 
or okay. <clears throat> get dinged. It's kind of the relative turnout between the two. Oh, that's interesting that you think that because the kind of the rule of thumb historically is you go look at the midterm election, the turnout in the midterm election, and that gives you a really good forecast for what turnout's going to be for the upcoming presidential election two years later. And of course, the midterm election turnout was very high, and that would suggest a high turnout for uh, 2024. But that's but you make a good point. That would be very interesting. Uh, but we'll see. We're going to update the, yeah. the the results every month uh, as we move forward here, and we'll uh, do further analysis on the candidates' proposals as they are put forward and try to assess their macroeconomic consequences. Um, okay, good. Uh, anything else? Uh, you know, there's a uh, before we kind of wrap it up here. We'll keep this uh, relatively short. This podcast relatively short. There was a plethora of other economic data that came out uh, this week. Uh, maybe we'll end this way. Of all the other economic data that came out, what would you call out uh, for listeners to be focused? Um, I've got a couple that are on my list. Uh, uh, Dante, do you have anything that you want to point out that we didn't talk about? Yeah, I think something sort of looking ahead to February and beyond. You know, I don't t- typically put a ton of weight on the Challenger report. You know, layoff announcements, but. They did jump pretty significantly in January. Uh, aside from last year, it was the highest January total since 2009. Layoff announcements were just over 80,000, um, which sort of mirrors what we saw at the beginning of last year as well, although the the reasons cited appear to be different. you know, We had an uptick in layoff announcements in the first quarter of 2023, and it was largely you know the reason that was cited was you know, deteriorating economic conditions at least in January this year so far, the biggest reason cited was restructuring. So it's not that firms necessarily feel like, uh, you know, conditions have deteriorated, but they're, you know, sort of uh, cost savings, trying to you know, right size themselves after a year of pretty strong job growth. So I'm not sure that it has the same, you know, obviously there was a lot of negative uh, feelings about where we were headed at the beginning of last year as, you know, sort of headline layoffs were were up quite a bit. I'm not sure this generates that same kind of negative outlook for people, um, but I think something to keep an eye on. And, you know, some of that could carry over into the February employment reports. Uh, you know, UI claims are creeping up a little bit over the last couple of weeks off of a very low level, admittedly, but it was sort of fit with this idea that late in January, we saw layoffs start to pick up a little bit and so could give some some headwind to February's employment growth. Yeah. Have you heard this criticism of the UI claims? I mean, UI claims, initial claims from employment insurance have been very, very low, kind of around 200,000 per week. As you pointed out, they pushed up a little bit in the last couple of weeks, but you know they're still low. That maybe uh, it's, uh, it's kind of sending a bias signal because one reason is uh, UI eligibility is down. And I, I have not investigated this. I'm just repeating what I've read. And the other uh, factor is that because of high inflation, UI benefits on a real basis are not that great. And therefore, people much rather go get a gig job or some temporary job that's going to pay more and better than the UI uh, because it hasn't kept up with inflation. Does that resonate at all with you, those arguments? It does. Yeah, I think it's been years, but I, I did some work on the eligibility issue. And I think it does have a sort of meaningful, will meaningfully depress you know, sort of the level of claims that we can see at any one time, because the you know, eligibility has been cut back pretty sharply in a fair number of states over time. I think the other thing, too, is just you know, the unemployment rate is 3.7%, right? So even if you have an uptick in layoffs, it, the labor market certainly seems more capable of absorbing 
people that are looking for new jobs much more quickly, right? So if you think your outlook to find a new job is pretty good, you know, you may hold off on even filing a claim because you think you might land a new job in a few weeks anyway, uh, especially if benefits aren't that valuable, you know, given inflation. So I think all of those things together, you know, I wouldn't be surprised if claims are sort of depressed by those factors. Although I, I, I mean, I point out that the jolts, you know, lo- layoffs in the job opening labor turnover survey. Uh, also low, yeah. I mean, really low. I mean, yeah. r- not low, just like really low, consistent with low UI claims. Right. Yeah, it does fit together. Yeah. Okay. Um, uh, Chris, any statistic you want to, because again, there was a plethora of them this past week. Any, any other statistic you wanted to call out? Yeah, I was going to call out the jolts report itself right that you alluded to just uh to me it it showed continued strength in the labor market job openings remain pretty solid nine million uh quits are a bit down but that's again a bit consistent with uh the fed's objectives here so um there's no real surprises here nothing that screams that there's a a real risk of the labor market falling apart anytime soon yeah Dante, any other interpretation of that data? No, yeah, I thought Jolts was positive. You know, we had seen a big dip in in hiring, and that at least partially yeah. reversed. So, you know, that seems like more noise than anything else at this point. Yeah, yeah, I thought that was good. You know, the I'll call out the uh, consumer sentiment confidence surveys. Uh, uh, you saw the Michigan survey. I think they came out this morning mm-hmm. with an update. See, Michigan survey, which has been very, very depressed, and it rose to seventy nine. And just for context, if you go back to November, it was 61.3. So that's a pretty big change in the last couple of months. And I think the conference board survey, which I like even more uh, than the University of Michigan survey for reasons we've discussed and we won't go back into, has improved also quite dramatically. Uh, or, or Dramatic is too strong a word. It has improved meaningfully over the last couple, three months. The other thing that's happened is inflation expectations in the survey, in the University of Michigan survey, continue to move south. And I think they can, were down again. 2.9% is a, a, for a one year ahead. And I think also for five year ahead, kind of inflation expectations, both very good. So, uh, you know, the point being that uh, the economy has been improving, looks pretty good, looks very good, but that hasn't really kind of translated into people's perceptions, or at least seemingly hasn't translated into people's perceptions. But even the surveys now suggest that, well, maybe that's changing. People are starting to feel better about things. Uh, does that enter the election model? Or? Uh, it does. We ha- I didn't mention it, but we have uh, the conference board survey in there. But it, it, the way it enters in is only if uh, it falls to a level that's consistent with recession. Uh, so there's a uh, 80, uh, the average, I'm making this up, but roughly speaking, the average through time, and this conference board has been conducting the survey back into the 70s, and you take an average of all the survey uh, responses, it's, a, it's equal to 100. The the actual, uh, that's the, you know, the index value right on the nose. Um, it's now, uh, if it falls below 80, historically, that's a clear signal you're in recession. So that's the variable that we have in the model. So if it falls below that threshold, just for context, I think, and I'm making, again, I'm making this up, but memory serves, I think we rose to 114, right, on the survey. So yeah, it's in that neighborhood. We're above average, and we're you know we're not even in the you know recession is is not even in the in the in even close to being suggested by the survey. So. Okay, good, uh, very good. Uh, anything else? Um, 
uh, you want to bring up before we call it a podcast, uh, Chris? Dante, do you want me to quickly close the loop on response rates? I did look it up. Oh yeah, what were the yeah? What was the response uh, rate? Yeah. Well, so one, we should have. I, I don't think we talked about it last month, but last month was actually shockingly low uh, on the first release for December data. It was the lowest. Uh, I'm just eyeballing a, a table of numbers, but I think it was about the lowest first print response rate since 1990 across any month of the year. It was below 50%. So probably shouldn't be surprised that December got a big revision. And even now in the second release for December, the response rate is still much lower than it usually is. So I wouldn't be surprised to see another big revision to December in either direction You know, when we get mm. the next release of data. Um, for January, response rates were they weren't quite as low as December, but still much lower than they are normally in January. So you know, it opens the door for a potentially bigger revision to to January's data as well next month. Well, probably up to five hundred and seventeen. <laughs> never, you never know, right? <laughs> that was the number, right? Five hundred seventeen. Five seventeen. Yep. Yeah, five hundred seventeen. Okay, good. Well, well, thanks for doing that, um, Chris. Anything else? Uh, nope, just looking forward to having Marissa back next week. Yeah, be good to have her back. And Dante, always good to have you on Jobs Friday. Really appreciate the insight and expertise. Uh, and with that, dear listener, we're going to call this a podcast. Talk to you next week. Take care now. <laughs>